Hi, and welcome to episode seven of Planty Planty Zuzu. The podcast where me, Connor, and me, Stephanie, create our hypothetical zoo slash botanical gardens and fill it with all the creatures and plants and wonders that we dream of popping in a real visitor attraction. Welcome back, Stephanie. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) How have you been? It's been a little while since we did one of these. Yeah, it's been ages. I'm going to ask you what you've been up to, like I've not been doing literally everything you've been doing exactly next to you, alongside you. (laughs) So we had a break uh, by mistake. We went and visited families again. My family, then your family, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And then we were both ill. (laughs) Yes. But, um... Here we are, back on regular-ish schedule, which is all we ever aim for. So yeah, we've had a really nice time. We went to visit my parents and we saw Paradise Wildlife Park. Yeah, that was fantastic. It's an absolutely brilliant little zoo. Really, really good new enclosures for Sun Bear, Binturong and their pair of Jaguars as well. Mm. So that was a real treat, actually. Yeah, I really love what they did, bringing in a whole design company to theme their whole area. So all the different decoration that they had hanging up and it was just so amazing. Like it was so immersive. And when zoos are moving towards making guests feel like they're in an area of the world and these are the animals you can find in the area of the world rather than grouping together like all cats or whatever. It's just so good to have a zoo that's put that much into making you feel like... Like it was so exciting. I think the only other place I like to theming as much as probably London Zoo, which I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of theming there, and some parts of Chester as well. But I actually, I, I'm sorry, I just, I prefer London Zoo and Paradise Wildlife Park. Just their new bit is really good. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that I went there when I was really young sometimes, and yeah, it's different to how I remember. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're doing lots and lots of work to update it, so I think it was an absolutely fab place. So. And they had a dinosaur train, which my nephew threw a very reasonable tantrum over, because we were making him wait. <laughs> <laughs> which two-year-olds apparently not cool with doing, much to my shock. And yeah, actually, as soon as we all went on the dinosaur train... We all had a much better day. It was fab. It was I, To be fair. Spent a lot of time on the train. Absolutely valid tantrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was an excellent train. So yeah. Shout out to Paradise Wildlife Park. Yeah. And then one of us ended up going to another zoo as well, didn't they? <laughs> I did. I went to Jersey Zoo. The zoo was amazing. It's a place I've wanted to be my whole life because if you know anything about Jersey Zoo, it was founded by Gerald Durrell, the conservationist zoologist guy. He's kind of like another David Attenborough, basically. I mean, not quite as well known, but he was running around collecting animals at the same time as Attenborough. And he set up Jersey Zoo to be a new type of zoo. So this the zoo is very conservation first, zoo second. And the way it's described to me was most zoos are a zoo first. And as times have gone on, they've realised the importance of wildlife conservation and they've developed conservation programs. Jersey Zoo and Dora Wildlife Conservation Trust is more like it's a conservation organisation that happens to have a zoo and you know can get some funding and things through that and you really do get that vibe I mean the care taken over the animals and the way they celebrate them as well and like with the tortoises that went over from Bristol Zoo and they, they've got a whole like tortoise trail going on around Jersey Island with these tortoise statues I really liked it and Jersey Island itself is absolutely stunning I felt like I was in some kind of travel magazine. It was ridiculous. I felt extremely lucky to be there. I was only there for one night. But yeah, it's since I watched My Family and Other Animals, the film when I was younger, I was like so obsessed with Gerald Durrell and obsessed mm. with the idea of like going there one day and visiting that zoo. So I've always had in my mind... It's weird because I always pictured Jersey as like this 
big rocky island with a zooplankton yeah. top. And then I went and was like, oh no, it's it's a normal UK island. I guess it's what you'd expect. <laughs> but yeah, the zoo's absolutely lovely and I, I really recommend you. Yeah, and it definitely it. punches well above its weight in terms of conservation. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It's got such a good reputation for that. No, it's fantastic. I and you are insanely jealous. Oh, absolutely. And shout out to their marketers and their branding because you got some excellent souvenirs from the gift shop. I did. I bought the whole gift shop. They were fantastic. (laughs) Excellent magnet to add to the collection on the fridge. I think that's everything so shall we get on with adding the species to Planty Planty Zuzu? Yeah absolutely. So I am really excited about the animal I'm going to add this week so I'm going to get you to guess based on this is where it lives. Interesting I am being shown a very blue lake surrounded by mountains covered in snow. Is it a snow leopard? It's not a snow leopard but where's that place first of all? I don't know it's mountains and snow isn't that Snowdonia? No I've been there. Yeah yeah that's Snowdonia National Park yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kilimanjaro. No. Uh, the Andes. Absolutely right, the is Andes. It? Are you going to tell me about some kind of Andean eagle? No, Kestrel? No. Is it a bird? No. It's got a tail that looks a little bit like that. <gasps> he showed me a straggly tail. And it's the most endangered one of its family in the Americas. Is it a lynx of some kind? No, but it's a cat. Snow leopard. <laughs> I promise you I'm right. <laughs> it's, it's not a snow leopard. Is it a tiger? No, I think you've got about as close as you're going to get. You found out it was a cat and yeah. it's from the Andes. Yeah. It's the Andean cat. Oh my God, I, as you said it's a cat from the Andes, I, in my head I was like, there's an Andean cat. I'm pretty sure that's been on TV. <laughs> the most endangered oh. cat of the Americas. This absolute gorgeous little boy. This is the Andean cat. Looks like a house cat. It does look a little bit like a house cat, <laughs> just a bit chunkier. Yeah, um, more interesting eyes. That's a comment, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about this cat's eyes make them significantly more interesting than a, than a, a house cat's eyes? It's probably just the angle of the photos. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Andean cat found in the Andes, funnily enough. Nice. Where are the Andes? At the end of the armies. God's sake. <laughs> that was a joke in my colouring in notebook when I was 12. <laughs> I'm glad I finally got to bring that into my adult life. <laughs> they are in South America. They are in South America. Which countries are they in? Venezuela. No. Brazil. No. Argentina. Peru. Oh. Chile. And Bolivia. Oh. So those are the four countries where you would find the Andean cat. And they, they're up in these really high altitudes, so 1,800 metres above sea level, up to about 4,000 metres, pretty high up in the mountains, across these rocky, arid, fairly sparsely vegetated, steep habitats. As a result of that, it's actually quite a fragmented habitat, because it's fragmented by these big old valleys in between these mountains. So they are very specialised animal for those habitats. And because of these extreme environments they live in, we know very little about them. So this might be a quick podcast. (laughs) So they are closely related to ocelots, which are another South American small cat. So they've got this gorgeous slender body with amazing spot patterns. Interestingly, they have between six and nine rings on their tail. Now that's important because they look very similar to another cat that lives in that region as well. The pampas cat. Nice, that's gorgeous. Very stunning. So this is making it trickier to actually learn about the Andean cat because some people can't tell the difference between the Andean cat and the pampas cat. And they live in exactly the same regions, pretty much. But there are a few big differences, those tail rings being what? So the Andean cats have between six and nine rings, whereas pampas cats have exactly nine rings. Mm. Anything less than nine rings is an Andean cat. They also 
have a shorter tail. So the pampas cat's tail makes up a half of their body length, whereas for a Andean cat, it makes up two thirds of their body length. They've got this incredibly long tail to help them balance on these rocky outcroppings that they're spending most of their time on. The pampas cat has pointy ears and a pink nose. Yeah. Whereas the Andean cats have a black nose and rounded ears. But, as you can imagine, for a cat living really high up in the mountains, in some very fragmented habitats, they're not doing very well. So they are the most endangered of all the cats in the Americas. Now, it's pretty hard to tell exactly how many of them there are because of these, these mix-ups with the pampas cat. But the best guess is less than 1,400 grown adults out in the wild. Aww. So not very many. So they're classified as endangered, mainly threatened by habitat loss, habitat de degradation, retaliatory ki killings due to other predators in the regions killing local people's livestock and them going out and just indiscriminately killing all predators because they're not exactly sure who mm. did it. So it's unlikely it was actually ever Andean cats, but they can be persecuted because of it. And hunting, both for fur and for meat, but also for traditional purposes, because they're actually considered a sacred animal according to several indigenous peoples. So actually throughout much of its range, dried and stuffed Andean cats are kept by local people to be used every year in harvest festivals. I was just wondering if you knew in what capacity, because I'm picturing people carrying them above their heads. I couldn't find too much information about how they were used, actually. I think the stuffed specimens and furs are used. Used, so I don't know exactly like dress what that means, but I wouldn't want to guess. Mm. I wanted to talk about their conservation because there is an amazing conservation organisation I found called Alianza Gato Andino, mm -hmm. or the Andean Cat Alliance. So the Andean Cat Alliance is made up of representatives of the four countries that they're found in. So Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, Chile. And they do loads and loads of work. Loads of research, which is incredibly difficult because of how inaccessible and extreme their environments are. But they've actually learned loads through the use of technology. So camera traps and radio telemetry to kind of track the cats. We know it's active at dusk and overnight, most of all. And that it's got a really large range for a cat of its size. Because of that, we know a little bit more about some of the factors affecting it. But they also do loads of work with local communities, educating them about the Andean cats and why they, they're really important. Working with local government officials and people that work in the national parks about tracking animals, training them on monitoring these Andean cats in their habitat. And they do lots of conservation work with the local communities as well to come up with initiatives that protect cats but also bring an economic benefit to the local people as well. So one of these big ones is green gold, because one of the biggest things that local people do is extract gold. Mm. The traditional ways of extracting gold are really polluting, so they have a huge effect on the habitat around them. But green gold aims to help local people extract it in more sustainable ways, so they can actually get more money for it, because it will then be sold on with a fair mind certificate, saying that it's been mined in a sustainable way, and that actually increases its value on international markets. Mm. So it's more sustainable in the way it's made, so it's less damaging to the habitats, but it also actually has a benefit for the people doing it as well. That's brilliant. That's not the coolest one. Mm. The coolest one is called Cat Crafts. Ooh. So this is a project that works with local women to create Andean cat themed products using sustainable raw materials and traditional methods, selling them on for fair prices, generating income for these local women in their communities. Mm. So it ends up putting a kind of economic value to Andean cats and actually showcasing the importance they have in their culture. And this is the most exciting one because it produces things like this. Oh, cute little cat creatures. Cute little. 
We definitely um, need one of those. Woolen cat figurines. Also, some amazing key rings, <laughs> which are absolutely stunning. Unfortunately, they are only available to buy from Chile currently. So we need to go to Chile. So if there are any listeners listening <laughs> in Chile, please, please, please get in touch because we want to talk. So that is an amazing uh conservation initiative i thought that was absolutely fantastic it is um, but there is one issue facing them that i haven't mentioned yet because another big one is prey reduction because their main source of food historically was probably another animal that lived in their range high up in the mountains a small rodent that we have actually worked with before Ooh. was it one of the education animals it was one of the education animals at bristol zoo we had river and we had rain. I've never heard those names in my life. I don't know what this animal is. Small, grey, really soft. Is it the one that's like a squishy hamster but with a cool name? So their main fo- source of food was chinchillas. Oh, I love them. You love them so much you completely forgot they existed. Very soft and fluffy. They're very soft and fluffy, which is why they all died. I say they all died. They are actually hunted nearly to extinction for the fur trade. Because if you think about humans, for every one follicle we have on our head, we have one hair. Mm. And chinchillas, for every one follicle they have, they have 50 hairs. Wow. Which is why they have such a soft, dense fur, perfect for coats. Mm. So people absolutely decimated their populations. It declined by 90%. In the early 1900s, over 20 million chinchillas were killed. Oh my gosh. And so by the 1960s, they were considered extinct in the wild, but new populations were discovered back in 1983. And there's now a few small populations scattered around Chile. So that was a main source of prey for the Andean cat. Mm. And so as those numbers of prey went down, so did the numbers of Andean cat. And actually now, their main prey is one of these. Short-eared rabbit guy swirly tail. Absolutely right. (laughs) I knew that was the name. This is a mountain viscaccia, and they make up over 50% of an Andean cat's prey, but 90%, over 90% of its biomass that it's eaten. So of the individual kills an Andean cat makes, it's just over half, mm. but actually of the amount it's actually eaten, it makes up over 90%. So they're incredibly reliant mm. on the mountain viscaccia as prey animals, which is why I'm also adding the mountain viscaccia to Planty Planty Zoo today. Can you do that? Yes, absolutely. It's my podcast. The rules. It's your podcast. <laughs> Ripped up. Oh my God, he's found the rules. Out. Oh, he's ripping them up. Oh no. So the Mount of Escatcha is also going in. So they like chinchilla. They're actually a member of the chinchilla family. So they are a small rodent. So there's four species, Ecuadorian, Northern, Southern and Wolfsons. And the main prey of the Andean cat are the Northern and the Southern. So they're Northern are found in Peru, Chile and maybe Bolivia. The southern tend to be found in all four countries. And they're again found right up in the top of the mountains in craggy cliffs, rock faces, in amongst the rocks where they spend most of their time because it's easier to avoid predators if you're in amongst twisty, turny rocks where they're really agile and can get around. And they're active during the day, but especially dawn and dusk. So they are pretty much a perfect food source. And they tend to breed pretty well. So they're actually least concerned. Oh, that's good. good news for the Andean cat, because if they were in any more trouble, the Andean cat would probably be in a bit more trouble as well. Is your plan to have these animals in an enclosure together? Almost. <gasps> but not quite. You're going to stress out the vacaccia, or whatever it's called. 
I want both of them in Planet Fantasy because I think they'd make a really, really cool thing. And I couldn't find any single zoo in the world that is currently or has previously held an Andean cat. Probably because nobody can go up and catch them. But the Skatchers are either held currently or held previously at four zoos. Park de la Playas in Peru currently hold them. And they were at one point held in the Vestipacos Zoo in Bolivia. They've also been held by Tierpark Schoenbeck in Germany. And they have actually been held here in the UK at Hamilton Zoo. Which is a cracking little zoo for rarities. And they are so far the only zoo in the UK to have had them. And actually successfully bred them as well. So they are really, really rare. So Plant Plenty Zoo Zoo would be the perfect place for them. Word. So I want to have them as part of our larger Wildlife of the Americas exhibit. So we've already got quite a few things in there. We've got our... Security beans. Yeah, we've got our hummingbird aviaries with our strangler figs in the mangrove hummingbird exhibit as well. Mm -hmm. We've got our alligator snapping turtle. We've got our coconut crab as well. Oh, yeah. And all the plants we're going to pop in there with them as well. And so I want these guys to go in there with those as part of that walkthrough house that might have windows into the hummingbird aviaries, windows into the vivariums of the coconut crab. As you walk through the house, I want to see the indoor house for these two animals. It's going to be lots of kind of fake rock work built quite high up. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking really, really high ceiling building, really, really tall glass windows looking into a built up rocky interior. Doesn't need to be fake rock, it's imaginary. Fair point. Could be real rock. Could be real rock. Yeah. Let's put actual cliff face in there, yeah. yeah. These glass running enclosure it's going to be effectively split down the middle so the rock will come all the way up to the front so the inhabitants of each enclosure can't see each other Ooh. but there is a big movable door in the middle so they'll have their quarters off behind the scenes as well so they're effectively there's going to be three enclosures in a row uh -huh. and that means that you can move the animals between the enclosures <gasps> so they'll, they'll never be in there at the same time no. for fairly obvious reasons yeah but it means they can actually share the same habitat at different times. And I want the same for their outdoor habitat as well. But won't the Viscatcha, if it's in an enclosure where the Andean cat's been, won't it get really stressed from the smell of the Andean cat? No, it can be really enriching for them. So oh, okay. actually having prey animals and predator animals in the same kind of habitat, it's been done for much bigger species before. So I know Highland Wildlife Park do this with their snow leopards and their markor, which is a type of goat. And they actually look like they like having the different smells and getting sort of being alert or like yeah absolutely that's cool granted the Viscatcher is a small rodent so it might shit itself <laughs> um so yeah so that enrichment and we can tell the stories about the interactions between these and why these Viscatcher numbers might have plummeted or why they're, they're now a primary source of food for the Andean cat where they probably wouldn't have been before yeah so we can tell the story of the chinchillas so i think that's a really interesting narrative to weave through but also an interesting perspective for visitors to get and mm. an interesting way of keeping those animals enriched and, and looked after I think it's well. a fantastic idea. It's not something I've really heard of before. And also, you could, if you wanted to, tie in the chinchillas, because obviously it's still an important conservation story. And also, sometimes you can do handling with chinchillas, can't you? So you could have, like, the occasional, you may stroke the chinchilla... Mm. and like have that sort of interactivity yeah absolutely we might have chinchillas off shows of handling animals interaction animals so you can bring them out yeah but yeah those are my two species we're popping in plenty plenty zuzu this week Ooh. any further questions no cool <laughs> on to me right so now it's my turn 
and I'm quite excited about the one I'm doing today. It's quite a foundational plant, so a lot of the plants that I've introduced to Planty Planty Zuzu so far have been kind of charismatic plants, I would say, kind of big ones, scary ones, poisonous ones, or like a recognisable house plant. So what you're saying is this one's going to be really boring? No, not at all. But that's what you animal folks would say. <laughs> Idiots. So, this is like, I got the idea because first of all, I kept getting advertised to on Instagram. And you know what I'm like with marketing. You are every marketer's absolute dream. So, this was kept being advertised to me on Instagram. And you know what, I kept not clicking on it because I was like, no, that's boring. I was wrong, it was really cool. So, I'd like to introduce to you something very important in Zoo Tycoon Marine Edition. Seagrass! Oh, seagrass. <laughs> seagrass is a big thing. Right, it's really important. I'm also introducing every species of seagrass because there's just so many, I couldn't pick one. I wrote down my favorite name, but I want to have choice of all of them. Hang on, are you? <laughs> Were you coming to me earlier for adding two species and now you're like, I'm how 78. many? 78. 78. Oh, I don't know if that's right. 72. There we go. You're adding 72 species of seagrass. But not maybe all at once. I just want us to have the option, you know, we want the optimal. So, first of all, it's a good idea because um, how many animals will need seagrass in Plopoi Zuzu? Lots. So we've got that down. But back to this advert, it sort of reeled me in. It kept trying to show me like seagrass superhero animated film thing. And then I finally watched it and I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Who and was it advertising? It's a collaboration between the Eden Project and Natural England. Oh. So they actually created an animated film that increases sort of seagrass awareness, its importance, conservation, all kinds of things and restoration that's going on. So yeah, I kind of watched it and I was like, actually, yeah, seagrass, extremely important. So I wanted to introduce it to Plant Plant Zuzu for the animals, but also for the conservation. So I'm going to tell you a bit about it now. So first of all, seagrasses, they are extremely important for coastal ecosystems. First up, what's the difference between a seagrass and a seaweed? Seagrasses are actually plants, they have roots, stems and leaves. They're actually one of the few true plants that you can find in the ocean. But seaweed are multicellular algae. They have little or no vascular tissue. What's vascular tissue? So these vascular tissues just transport water and other fluids throughout the plant. So they're very different. Okay, so seaweed doesn't have that, so it's not no. actually moving any water between it because it's just a fancy algae. Yeah, it's not a true plant, whereas seagrasses are. Seagrasses are very important components of coastal systems. They give lots of ecological benefits. So one of those is they serve as nursery areas and habitats for loads of different marine organisms, fish, shellfish, invertebrates, tons of them. And all these species and plenty more, they rely on the seagrass meadows for food and shelter and protection. You can find seagrasses in shallow coastal waters and every continent except Antarctica. Ooh. So all over the world. And so again, this is why I was like, oh yeah, good for Plotty Plotty Zuzu. Use it for everything. except anything. Whack them anywhere. Exactly. They can inhabit tropical temperate regions and they can be at two depths of 30 metres or more. So I said to you earlier, 72 seagrass species. They belong to four different families. And my favourite family name was Poseidoniaceae. 
Ooh. And I just enjoy that. Every species of the seagrass has unique characteristics and is adapted to the different environmental conditions. So that's why you find them tropical and intemperate. They'll have different characteristics to each other. They are flowering plants. They are adapted to saltwater environments and they have long ribbon-like leaves that grow from horizontal stems and these stems are called rhizomes. Is kelp a type of seagrass? No, it's not actually. It's actually a brown algae. Oh, okay. So the rhizomes anchor the plants into sediment and they allow them to spread and form seagrass meadows. Oh. I did get pictures up just so you can have a look, but it's exactly what you'd picture, really. It's literally... It is quite literally a meadow under the water. It looks like flooded grassland. It looks like I want to go frolicking through it. Right? So this is what I was thinking, because you know when I said before, we mentioned about scuba diving, and we are talking about sunfish, and I was like, this is made for scuba diving, I'd be there, I'd turn left, there'd be a big freaking weird fish there, I'd be like, ah, I don't like the idea of it. Leave my weird fish alone. But I like the idea of things like seagrass meadows, and like kelp forests and stuff, because it's like, I, I know what's going to be there. My grassy friends, my planty friends. There might be a fish. That's okay. It's probably small. So how old do you think seagrasses can get? How old does grass get? How old is our lawn, do you reckon? Go ask it. Um, seagrass can get 30 years old. That is a good guess. Technically not wrong. It can live for decades to centuries. But some individual meadows are estimated to be thousands of years old. Question. If it says a meadow is a thousand years old, does that mean the plants in the meadow are a thousand years old? Or the meadow as, a, Ooh, as an entire habitat is a thousand years old? So I would imagine if the seagrasses can live for decades or centuries and the meadows maybe have just been... It's been constantly regenerating, yeah. yeah. So they have a relatively slow growth rate. Um, they grow just a few centimetres a year. But under optimal conditions, some species can grow up to two metres annually. So two metres annually? Yeah. So most of them only a little zoop to go up, but some of them... Wait, some of them can grow taller than me every year. That's fairly impressive for a plant, Better right? than humans, yeah. Okay, we're getting on to some pretty good stuff. So the reason I've got three pages of notes is because I went down a rabbit hole that I like. I super didn't need to. Like it's really. That doesn't sound like you. It's very tangently attached to this, but we will be talking about it. To get into that, need a little bit of info. So seagrasses, highly efficient oxygen producers. So they're pumping out oxygen for us to breathe, which is very nice of them. Um, So this is through photosynthesis, just like other Mm -hmm. land plants. So this goes into the surrounding water and supports survival of other marine organisms. And interestingly. Oh. Seagrass meadows can produce up to 10 times more oxygen per unit area than land-based forests. Whoa. Right? And we always talk about forests as being the big ones that pumping out oxygen. Yeah. And the same goes for carbon sinks. This is going to blow your mind too. Seagrasses, extremely crucial carbon sinks. So when we talk about carbon sinks, these are plants and, and other things that take in carbon dioxide and sort of trap the carbon there. And that helps to sort of reduce global warming and and things like that but it's incredibly important for our climate seagrass meadows can take in carbon lock that in at rates up to 35 times faster per unit area than tropical rainforests wow we always talk about tropical rainforests as being the carbon sinks for our planet wow but actually seagrass 30 times faster it's the carbon and 
the oxygen. It's way more efficient. So this is why there's this push for uh, conservation and awareness of it. It's why I came across that animation video. Wow. Because it's like, actually, these are dead important to save. Do you now regret not doing your master's in seagrass meadow ecology instead of tropical rainforest ecology? No, I don't like being cold. <laughs> Fair point. God, I, how miserable would you be if you had to be out there like watching seagrass or whatever all day? You'd come home and it's like... Crying. Yeah. So they are one of the most effective natural carbon sinks. That's not the only important thing seagrasses do. Seagrass meadows are natural buffers against coastal erosion. Coastal erosion is a big issue where the land starts crumbling into the sea because there's just big waves, there's nothing to break it. And this is how you end up getting those sort of coastal defences built up. But seagrasses, it's a natural defence system because, well, because it slows everything yeah. down. Yeah, it acts as a buffer. They have these dense root systems and the above ground structures. It just helps stabilise all the sediments as well. So it's reducing things from, it's preventing things being washed away. It's reducing the impact of waves and currents. So they also absorb energy from storms, protecting coastlines from damage in that way. And a natural defence against coastal flooding as well. Now we get into a cool little bit of history. This was the rabbit hole I went down. So underwater seagrass meadows stabilise the seafloor by dampening wave energy. So forming that stabilising network of roots and stems. They build up the seabed as well. So as you can imagine, you've got seagrass and then whenever like sediments come through or being washed through or anything, any sort of physical object, you can imagine it kind of getting slowed down and then coming to rest on that seafloor. In that way, these particles, they sort of build up mat-like layers and deeper sediments get buried and that means they also protect anything that's buried with them. Archaeology, one of my favorite things. Not only that, but by sort of creating these layers, they end up actually locking out oxygen. So while they're producing loads of oxygen um, above these meadows and everything, um, meanwhile in the sediment, because it's getting packed so thick, it's locking out oxygen. So then it means that items that would normally be eroded away by seawater, degraded by oxygen in the water, they're actually preserved. So in this way, seagrass meadows have actually provided us with really cool archaeology records, human history records, but also marine biology records of what species have been around at different times, Ooh. what people in the past have used them for. So the organic and chemical structure of these meadows, they create a type of underwater time capsule, and they've been known to encase and protect shipwrecks, <gasps> Stone Age settlements as well, Whoa. for thousands of years. <laughs> I want to go dig in a seabed. <laughs> I'm going to retrain as a marine archaeologist. Is that a thing? Surely. Yeah, probably. We'll find one. One specific example is Atlit Yam. In the Mediterranean Sea, there's well-preserved seagrass meadows dating back 7,000 years off the coast of Israel. So one of these ancient seagrass meadows was found near the submerged prehistoric settlement of Atlit Yam. Underwater excavations in this area have uncovered rectangular house foundations. Whoa! And even wells. Whoa! as well and so they could see from the wells what things people were eating because they were chucking their like animal bones in after and things Whoa. like this yeah so the site was actually covered by the rise of sea levels after the end of our last ice age however they think there's something that actually destroyed the village first Ooh. it wasn't just that sea levels were rising so people evacuated they think it was abandoned very suddenly because 
as well in the seagrass meadows, they found piles of fish ready to be traded or to be stored and some other things ready for market. So they think it was abandoned really, su really suddenly. An Italian study led by Maria Pareschi of the Italian National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology in Pisa indicates that a volcanic collapse of the eastern flank of Mount Etna 8,500 years ago would likely have caused a 10-storey tsunami. So that's 40 metres or 130 wow. feet to engulf some Mediterranean coastal cities within hours. So they think that about 7,000 years ago or however many, like thousands of years ago, this massive tsunami came, everyone was crapped themselves and hopefully <laughs> managed to evacuate, but that then became submerged, so. Wow. Yeah, it's really incredible. And the reason we have all this information, seagrass. Isn't that amazing? That was really cool. So freaking cool. <sighs> so these submerged settlements and shipwrecks, the reason they came to light was from sand quarrying. So quarrying sand and they get revealed. And the presence of seagrass by these human settlements indicates that humans, thousands of years ago, they looked for stable coastal environments. And it suggests that humans recognise their ecological value because they were setting up near the meadows. So they probably used them for things like fishing, and analysing the seagrass remains give insights into dietary habits, changes in marine biodiversity. And all of these findings just sort of emphasise the importance of preserving and understanding seagrass habitats. So it's not just eco ecological reasons, although those are incredibly important, but also our own human history. Who would have thought? Simple little seagrass. I take it back. The they stories. not as boring as I first thought. Yeah, the stories they hold, the secrets, the things they've seen. So going to get into conservation a little bit because there is actually some really good conservation going on. Mm. People are taking this very seriously. So as you can imagine, they're facing sort of the threats of humans that every single mm -hmm. living thing is facing. So pollution from coastal development, agricultural runoff, industrial activities that degrade water quality and harm seagrass ecosystems. And also physical disturbances, so dredging and bottom trawling can destroy these seagrass meadows. But there are some really good, important conservation efforts going on. And I think you don't hear about these kinds of things as much because, again, seagrass, not that charismatic. This whole thing at the moment is to do with restoration, which is really exciting because often with conservation, when it comes to like restoration of an environment, it's so complex and so difficult to try and rebuild these environments or just expand them. But actually, seagrass restoration has been working superbly. Some of the conservation efforts are, first of all, establishing marine protected areas, but also implementing sustainable fishing practices, reducing pollution, raising awareness of their importance. So the animated film that I watched that raises awareness is showcasing the UK-based Remedies Restoration Project. So it stands for Reducing and Mitigating Erosion and Disturbance Impacts Affecting the Seabed. So Remedies is a £2.5 million five-year marine conservation programme aimed at increasing the area of seagrass meadows in five special areas along England's south coast. This has been done before in Virginia in a coastal reserve. They lost a ton of their seagrass meadows in the 1930s to hurricanes and subsequent diseases. By the 1990s, they only had a few small patches left, but scientists and conservationists set about restoring the seagrass, and over time, they transplanted healthy seagrass shoots from nearby meadows to the restoration site and the transplanted seagrass took root and it spread and the seagrass population was successfully restored. So there's a precedent for this already and it's still going strength to strength. So in the UK, we're trying to plant 5 million seagrass seeds 
off Wales's coast to create climate change fighting underwater meadows. So Seagrass Ocean Rescue wants 10 hectares or 25 acres of seagrass meadow by 2026 because Wales has lost 92% of its seagrass over the past 100 years. But it is possible to sort of replant it, restore it, recreate it. Don't yeah, know I know National Marine Aquarium are doing loads of work with seagrass down in Plymouth as well. Yeah, so there's actually, it's one of those things you don't hear about much because I imagine, you know, it's not glamorous and you just hear the word grass really, mm. but our grasses are so important. And one of my favourite things was, you know, we all know about how unexplored the ocean is and how not well understood it is. In the Caribbean, there's an organisation that put cameras on tiger sharks so that they could see what the tiger sharks see. And they discovered this absolutely enormous seagrass meadow in the Caribbean that they hadn't been known of before. Whoa! Because they had these little cameras on the sea on the tiger sharks, and they sort of. Fed. Oh my god! They like, like little explorer drones, yeah. but instead of drones, they're just little sharks yeah. just going about their day, just being like hom nom 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 nom. Conservationists. Oh my god! And they had a like a camera on them that was rigged to fall off after like six hours or something. So then they floated to the surface. Scientists grabbed it. Analyze that's the really cool. Yeah, seagrass meadows. So yeah, that's what I want to introduce to Planty Planty Zuzu. In terms of where I want to put it, kind of just everywhere. It's such an important thing and it's it. I think it's one of the conservation projects that I would really like Planty Planty Zuzu to sort of shine a light on because I think it's the ones that you don't think of as much, you know. You think of whales and things and obviously they do need help and everything from humans. But something like seagrass... That's actually really opened my eyes to seagrass. I'll show you I the film after this. Yeah, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Right, well, that's it for this week, Planet Fun Suzu. Yeah, I'm really happy with all of our 74 new additions to <laughs> Planet Fun Suzu. Seven, yeah, 72 species of seagrass. And the Andean cat and the mountain viscatcher. So yeah, that's it for now. And follow us on Instagram at Planty Planty Suzu or Twitter at Planty Planty Zoo. You can also check out our website at plantyplantyzuzu.com and please, wherever you get your podcast, wherever you are listening to us right now, Please feel free to rate and review and subscribe as well. So shout about us and tell other people that you enjoy listening to us, if you do. Tell them that if you don't as well. Just let them know. Lie. Lie uh, to them. Be absolutely. Like, be like, you know what, I hate this, but I'm going to tell everyone it's really great. Just do it. Why not? Yeah. Chaos day. If you're not doing it out of support, do it out of spite. Yeah. Tell your worst to... enemy that you love this podcast and get them to listen. We're really happy that we've got over 100 followers on Instagram now and people might actually enjoy listening to us. So we're absolutely thrilled. So thank you for listening. And we'll catch you in the next episode of Planty Planty Zuzu. Coming soon. Bye. Bye.